Let me open us with a word of prayer and we will get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have as the body of Christ to gather together to be able to worship you, to be able to study your word without fear of harassment or persecution. I just pray, Lord, that you would enable us today to take advantage of the privileges you've given us. Help us to show love for one another, help us to encourage one another, and help us, Lord, to be able to absorb your word and not just hear it, but apply it to our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we began last week, we were returning to our study of First Peter chapter 2. So if you haven't already done that, if you're new to our class, we're in the middle of a study of First Peter. We are actually in chapter 2 and we're at verses 11 and 12. And last week I gave an overview of the book, sort of to catch us up to speed because it had been several months since I taught. But in the early part of the book, Peter has already laid out a lot of very important truth. He's talked about theological truth. He's given exhortations to holiness. He, he's exhorted about the need to control our thinking. He's talked about the need to be centered on Christ and His Word. He, he's really already given us a lot of basic exhortations in the Christian life. And He's reminded us in part of the unique privileges we have by virtue of our salvation. The original recipients of this letter were being subjected to a lot of persecution. Life was hard for them. It was not an easy time to be a believer. And yet in the midst of their hardship, Peter was trying to encourage them to keep pressing on. Keep moving forward. You can do this. And as we got last week into verses 11 and 12, what I alluded to was he was really in a transition of the book. He's sort of summarizing what has preceded and what is coming. And in fact, verse 11, and some commentators would tell you, really summarizes what's already occurred. And verse 12 is looking forward to what's going to occur for the remainder of the book. And so I've broken it down just into a simple two-part outline. But last week we covered verse 11, and I'll briefly go over that again. It's two steps for living a life pleasing to God. As I mentioned, if you could live out these verses, you would hear, well done, good and faithful servant at the end of your life. Because this summarizes our Christian response to our salvation. But the first step for living a life pleasing to God is to resist the fleshly lust of your heart. This is what we occupied our time with last week. Resist the fleshly lust of your heart. And it comes from verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Beloved really is Peter's clarion call to these saints. This is not some dispassionate bureaucrat who's barking out orders for the corporation to run effectively. This is someone who loves the people. He loves them, he cares for them, and even the phraseology of I urge you, he, he wasn't giving a harsh command, he's basically, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, this should be your life. And he's acknowledging right up front what is a truth that should be near and dear to each one of us. We are aliens and strangers. His original recipients were surrounded by pagan culture that was increasingly wicked. There was no sympathy or tolerance for Christianity. The behavior of the Gentiles, the pagans at that time, would have made us blush today. 
And he's reminding them, look, you're aliens here. You're outsiders. This world isn't your home. The terms are really synonymous. They're not painting a graphically different picture. It's just the sum total is the fact that we, even today, aren't supposed to be attached to this world. We're passing through. This isn't where the majority of our life is going to play out. If you think about it, our earthly existence is just a whiff and poof, it's gone. We live for all eternity with the King in heaven. So the reminder to the believers is, when he's saying this, is you're not a part of this world, so don't be a part of the world. You're not living in this world permanently. Don't act like you're living in it permanently. And verse 11, as I mentioned last week, is really focused on the internal of the heart. Verse 12, as we're going to get to later, is the externals. But the internal of the heart is that battle against the flesh. Abstain from fleshly lust. Abstain is, means what you think it means. Stay away from. Avoid them. And the idea is that this is something going on internally. Even though when normally we see abstain and we think, okay, stay away from all the bad things, and we should stay away from all the bad things, what he's talking about is the battle for our minds and our hearts. When the thinking goes astray. These fleshly lusts, the word for lust isn't referring exclusively to sexual sin, although it can encompass that. It's just talking about desire, strong desires that well up within you, and the word fleshly makes it clear these are the perverted desires that come from living in a fallen world. In fact, I'm going to read it again because it's so relevant, but really I think what you could do if you're thinking about, well, wait a minute, what are the fleshly lusts? You could look at Galatians 5 and see the deeds of the flesh and realize what it's talking about is when you have this battle in your heart to be tempted to do any of these things. Galatians 5 verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, if that wasn't enough to catch every sinful thought you ever had, just add anything else that's anything like those. And he's making it clear, these types of thoughts and lust, these desires that start to well up within you, are not innocent. Now, we wish, and I certainly wish, that at the moment of my salvation, I never had those thoughts again. I alluded to a funeral message that I had heard when I taught last week, where it was talking about the fact that when you get to heaven, you don't have this struggle anymore. There's no more fleshly lust to battle against, and it's like, well, I can't wait to get there. Man, that will be such a nice rest but in the meantime, we have this army of soldiers, as I read a quote from one commentator, this army of soldiers that are on the march, constantly fighting us, and it's always on the inside. Now, it's a winnable battle. Here's the problem for all of us, is when the thoughts assault us and we struggle against the same thoughts and temptations for years, we sometimes can have the temptation to say, well, I'm done. Can't do anything about it. I've actually heard people say to me in a Christian context in counseling of like, I can't do it. 
It's not my fault. God's just overwhelmed me. Well, that's not biblically true. In fact, when you feel overwhelmed by the external circumstances that make the internal temptation something you can act upon, you should remember 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has seized you, but such as is common to man. No temptation has overtaken you. I memorized it in a different version when I was a new believer. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Whatever struggles you're feeling in your heart, I can assure you, you don't have to act on them. Even if the external circumstances give the opportunity to. The Bible makes it clear. Our old self was crucified. It's not completely eradicated. That's why we have something waging war against our soul. But we have the ability to overcome it. So we have a constant battle. And we can prevail. But Peter's ultimate point is this. We need to be fighting that internal issue. And we have to fight it however it comes about. Whatever you have to do to stop feeding the things that make you think a certain way, you've got to do it. And really, you'll be able to see now as we come to our second point and we get into our verse, and I'm done summarizing what I taught last week, you'll see how these play together. Two steps for living a life pleasing to God. First, resist the fleshly lust of your heart. Number two evangelize the lost with your life. Evangelize the lost with your life. Don't be tripped up by my phraseology. Because while I'm talking about evangelism, and I really am, I'm not talking about, do you have a good gospel presentation in your pocket that you can bust out to read to the right person at the right time? Verse 12 says this, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that, in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, I'm going to break down and talk a little bit about the different parts, and then at the end, I'm going to try and apply this in a comprehensive way. Because this speaks volumes to our daily existence. But the first thing he says is keep your behavior excellent. And you can see this is the logical outgrowth of abstaining from fleshly lust. You're fighting against all of those negative things in your heart. A good inward life should lead to a good outward life. But it's also critical, and this is always an important part of Christianity, it's not just avoiding the wrong thing, it's doing the right thing. It's not just don't. This is the positive component. So the negative aspect, watch what's going on in your heart. The positive is you've got to live out your faith. Keep your behavior excellent. Behavior is just your daily life. You wake up in the morning, and at some point at the end of the day you go to sleep. Everything in between is your behavior. It's not a complicated phraseology. It's not a complicated word. 
It's just how you live. In fact, Peter has already used this word in a pressing exhortation which ties in to what we're being taught in verse 12. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, he says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And the idea of your behavior excellent just has the idea of praiseworthy. It's good. It's honorable. It's beautiful. It's morally good. And if you see how this fits together, it's really about living a life that looks different than the pagan culture all around you. In fact, it's supposed to be a life lived within that pagan culture. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Now, this doesn't mean that all the recipients of this were Jewish people. In fact, Gentiles was just a word meaning for those outside the family of God. Aliens and strangers are living amongst the citizens. We are aliens and strangers, but we live a life in hostile territory amongst unbelievers. The natural citizens of the fallen world who are still in darkness are supposed to be our neighbors. In fact, I think there's an assumption built into this that it's important for us as believers to remind ourselves about simply because of the world in which we live. At times, it's easier just to wall ourselves off. I think it would be easier at times just to build a big Christian community, put a big wall around it, and us just all hang out with each other. I mean, we'd still fight and all that stuff, but eventually, I mean, we're all going to heaven, so we'd be fighting with people that we could deal with. That was facetious, that we shouldn't be fighting. That would not be keeping our behavior excellent amongst the brethren. But here's the point. We're not supposed to live that way. I gave an illustration in a sermon months ago, maybe a year ago, about a guy who lived on top of a mountain on a peak by himself. That's not a Christian life. We're supposed to be living amongst the people. We're not supposed to be completely separate from the world in terms of our daily existence. We're not supposed to be hidden from the world. And I think Christians sometimes get off track with this. This doesn't mean we can't have good friends who are believers. I think good friends should be our, believers should be our good friends. Certainly we should have Christian fellowship. But at some point in our lives, we should also be interacting with the lost. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 and 11 has an interesting statement. You can just write it down. But 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 11, you can read it. But Paul's writing and he says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. So he had written this letter, don't associate with immoral people. Verse 10, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a violer or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here's the whole point. We can follow in the example of Jesus. We can eat with sinners. We can fellowship with sinners. We can interact with sinners. 
But at every point along the way, it's expected that we're not going to look like them. That's the key distinction. We're going to interact with unbelievers. If you look through your life and you never interact with unbelievers, something is a little bit off kilter. I can tell you this is a lot harder for me as a pastor. We only hire godly people here. We largely interact with the church here. Last week I interacted with two homeless people that slept in our pond. That's a rarity for me. We don't have homeless people wandering through here most of the time into the church. But even now, I can identify for you unbelievers that I interact with. Each one of us should make sure that we're interacting at some point with the world. Not to be the world, but to be there. So we're to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And Peter gives us the reason, so that. So that... In the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. So, we certainly are supposed to be holy because God is holy. But a second reason for us to keep our behavior excellent amongst the unbelievers with whom we interact is so that it will transform some of them. It's evangelistic. Let me explain this. First, people are going to say bad things about Christians. In the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. Peter's original hearers were standing apart from society. They came to faith in Christ and people did not understand them. I hear a lot of times, and I see it and I've lamented it myself, people don't understand what we believe in America This was exceptionally so at this time. At least in America, Christianity has a couple thousand years. Then it was brand new. And the people were standing apart. They weren't doing what everyone else was. Too much of history to give a full expansive list. But for example, Christians were called atheists at times. Why? Because they didn't worship all the gods. That's ironic that we would be called atheists, but they didn't worship all the gods that everybody else did. They were accused of being cannibals because of misunderstanding of the Lord's table. If you're talking about eating the flesh and drinking the blood, well, what else is that? They were accused of subverting the government, of being rebels, of being troublemakers. They were accused of all kinds of things. And what Peter is talking about when he says in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, he's talking about that type of discussion where the unbelieving world hurls accusations at Christians. He's talking about the same thing that Jesus made clear would occur to believers. In Matthew five eleven to 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecute the prophets who were before you. This has always been the case. People who truly follow the Lord will be accused falsely of things. So what Peter is saying is that keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, because some people are going to be talking bad about what you do. People are going to be hurling accusations against you. 
Now, it's implicit the accusations are supposed to be false. It's bad enough when we give them true reason to complain. But if our behavior is excellent, then the accusations against us are just going to be untrue. And if we're doing what God calls us to do, even though people are accusing us of things, at the end of the day, they'll be proved false. At the end of the day, your life will stand up to the scrutiny. You're not supposed to be living in such a way that the accusations are true. They should be provably false if your behavior is consistently excellent. And let me add, none of us is perfect. All of us fall short. It matters to unbelievers when you acknowledge it and you don't justify it. And you ask for forgiveness. They don't have a clue what you're doing. But when you're wrong, say you're wrong. We're not perfect. But part of keeping your behavior excellent is acknowledging our imperfections. Now again, we're supposed to be careful with our daily conduct. Throughout Scripture we see that. First Thessalonians five twenty one and 22. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So there's that negative. But we're also supposed to be actively doing positive things. But the negative can't be a part of our lives. Peter's going to say that later. We'll cover it in more detail. First Peter 4, 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. Any of that type of behavior, the fleshly lust that we're going away from. So what does good, upstanding, moral conduct look like? It looks like behavior stemming from the fruit of the Spirit. Again, Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what our daily lives should look like. If you're exercising those qualities in every corner of your life, your behavior will be excellent among the Gentiles. The application to each one of us is limitless. Do you work in an unbelieving, hostile workplace? In spite of that, you show love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. Do you have unbelieving family members who give you a hard time? You still treat them with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And ultimately you're doing that again, partly because we're supposed to be holy as God is holy, but partly because the unbelieving world is watching. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, in other words, they've seen that you're living something different. They may, because of your good deeds, because you've proven that all of their accusations are false. As they observe them, they may, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Many in the unbelieving world want us to fail. There are many people who 
daily scan to see another Christian fall. When there's some scandalous sin that befalls a prominent Christian, there are some people that celebrate and rejoice. Because they say, I knew they were all fakers anyway. I knew this was just a scam, and this proves it. And all that's true. In the sense of, when someone like that falls, it's a significant thing. But what Peter is saying is that some people are going to see that we don't always fail. And some people are going to see that this is real. And some people, because of that, are going to say, I want what that person has. I want that life. And some people, because of that, are going to come to faith. It says they're going to glorify God. Unbelievers are not glorifying God. Some people are going to watch our lives and it's going to be used by the Lord to draw them to Himself. It talks about the day of visitation. There's a lot of discussion about that. I don't think it means just the second coming. I think it means they'll be glorifying God in this context when He comes and opens their heart and opens their eyes and they can see and they're regenerated. Our lives are on display, not just mine because I'm a pastor, not just Pastor Steve because he's a pastor, although that's true, not just Rig because he's one of our elders, every one of us. And when you think you're not significant at all, look at this verse, even you by your daily life are living evangelistically. In Matthew five fourteen and 16 We see these words. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus was teaching the same thing. You see that over and over. The apostles aren't treading new ground They're illuminating and further explaining teaching that's already been given. Certainly our interactions with each other are a big part of this. In John chapter 13 verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I loved you that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Certainly one of the ways we keep our behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles is how we interact with other believers. How we interact as a church. How we conduct our affairs. As a lawyer, I used to use words all the time. My life was a constant argument and an exhortation. And you're constantly trying to win and persuade And what the Bible says in this context is that sometimes your persuasion is nonverbal. Certainly faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. I'm not in any way minimizing or suggesting that we don't need a verbal proclamation. But quite often the reason someone's going to ask you to give an account for the hope that is within you is because of what they see with their eyes in your life. 
looking forward to getting there. In fact, these verses at the beginning of chapter 3 of 1 Peter are one of the reasons I was drawn to this book. But I think it's interesting what an illustration of this on the broader scale is in the marriage relationship. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word. So stop for just a moment, and again, I'm going to cover this in detail. But some women are married to men who aren't following the Lord. That's not a secret. But it's interesting, the prescriptive diagnosis and cure for this. Part of the reason a wife is to be submissive so that they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. I think there's a sense in which that lesson in the marital relationship, which is just live godly and trust the Lord to work in the heart, is how we live in the world. As a kid, I heard the expression, actions speak louder than words. I don't know where it came from. I'm sure there's some I could look it up, but I didn't. I think that's the ultimate point here. Is as believers, part of the reason we're fighting that battle against the desires of our heart is so that the outward expression of our heart doesn't lead unbelievers astray. Rather, that our behavior's excellent. If we're living good and holy and upright lives, eventually even some of the unbelievers are going to say, okay, at least that person's not a hypocrite. Some of you may have experienced that already. Now this is where I'm going to tread lightly. Because there's a sense in which the application for each one of us is intensely personal. I can't tell you what unbelievers you live amongst or what good deeds would look like in your life. Again, I can tell you the heart attitude produces them from Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. But each one of us has to live a certain way. And in our culture, we have to take stock from time to time. Where are we? I can tell you the last year, I've been thinking a lot about what our culture thinks about us. Not because, in one sense, I care or need their validation, But because of verses like this. Because I want us to be good examples. I can tell you there are two people that I've witnessed to for over 20 years. I won't name them. I talk to them, one of them multiple times a week. One of them at least every week. And I find myself drawn into discussions about the popular culture. Because their views of what Christians are, are based on what they're seeing on TV. And they're seeing the people protesting and they're seeing the people spouting out political slogans and they're seeing pastors who are on display publicly talking about politics and I get the question, what's going on with your people? What they mean to say is they don't understand based on what I've been telling them for 20 years is important what they're seeing being played out in everyday life by people that claim to believe what I've told them I believe. Christians today are accused of some bad things. Certainly we're always accused of being phonies. 
that we really have a political agenda, that we're not really concerned about Christ and all these things, but we're really just trying to manipulate American society through the pulling of the levers of power, and all we're doing is playing a big political game. Some of it is people seeing, and they think, Christians are just another voice trying to manipulate. Let me encourage you. Be careful what you validate with what you talk about. I love America. I always vote. The next text we're talking about is submission to the governing authorities. I'm looking forward to that. But the fact remains, the biggest issue for us should not be what's going on in Washington. When people talk to us as believers, every word out of our mouth should not be tainted with some political venting anger. I have great concerns about the world in which my kids are going to grow up, but my concerns aren't economic. My concerns are how do I prepare them to walk with Christ in an increasingly hostile world. But this is the evolution of my heart because I spent years as a professed believer just being angry all the time. What do you mean? I was angry with every politician that didn't agree with me. And I told people how angry I was with all those politicians. And looking back, it's embarrassing. Because people could have believed that the most important thing was politics. Because that's what occupied my time, that's what I was talking about. Let me encourage us all to be careful. To make sure even in these times where everything is publicized and politicized that we don't get off track. You know, the people who were spouting racist and Nazi views in Charlottesville last week all march under the banner of the cross. Not only is that shameful, but we have to be careful never to follow in their footsteps. It's never okay to be racist. It's never okay to be anti-Semitic. God created every human being. It doesn't matter the skin color, it doesn't matter the ethnic origin, it doesn't matter what country. We have to be careful that we don't put labels on people that God doesn't put on them. Because when we're in heaven, we'll be there with every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And I can assure you, every skin color, every everything. We need to make sure that we draw clear lines so that our behavior is excellent and nobody assumes that we are with them. You know, we should be known for doing good things, little things. It's a simple thing. We have a Wood Valley ministry that we talked about where they were giving out backpacks to kids that can't afford them. That's a good thing. We should have ten different ministries like that. We have a school that welcomes any type of person. We bring them in. We have the most diverse group of people that reflect our community at that school. 
we should support that. We should rejoice at that. I'm not in any way saying that there's the only things you can do or through the church. We should be living these things outside of here. Our marriages should be testimonies. Our relationship with our kids should be testimonies. The way we work should be testimonies. In fact, we're going to see over the next weeks and months, area by area, where we can keep our behavior excellent. We're going to see it in relation to the government. We're going to see it in relation to the employers. We're going to see it in relationship to our spouses. We're going to see it in relationship to church leaders. We're going to see it in terms of what church leaders are supposed to do in terms of the church population. But each one of us needs to take stock. Christians should not be running around with torches and pitchforks ready to burn down Washington. I'm not on social media. That's not praiseworthy. I'm just not. But I hear of things that people post on Facebook that are sad. Christians... People amongst our midst posting things that are stirring up strife and dissension and are not kind. Let me tell you, that's all part of our behavior. Every time somebody does something, what happens? All their social media is on the news. Here's what they said here. Here's what they said here. They did this tweet. They did this. This is what they posted on Facebook. Be careful. Keep your behavior excellent even in the areas where we think nobody else is going to see it because they always do. But particularly when we know we're on display, live differently. Because for some of the lost people in the world, the thing that God is going to use to convict their hearts is they're going to look at our lives and say, I want that. Somehow they're different than everybody else. I want to be that way. Let me encourage you. Our lives should be reflective of the fruit of the Spirit and that is the greatest evangelistic tool we have. And where this is really going to play out is with your family members who aren't saved because they know you. And if your kids aren't saved, they know you. And if your spouse isn't saved, they know you. And if your parents aren't saved, they know you. And if your cousins and aunts and uncles aren't saved, they know you. The only negative part of teaching through 1 Peter is how hard it is to get past each hurdle for my own life. But that's a good thing. Because it's a reminder to me to keep my behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles. What Peter's already said is a fitting conclusion. First Peter 1, 14-16 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Please join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're merciful to us. Lord, I think about 
the countless times in the 20 plus years that I've been a believer where my behavior has not been excellent. Where I've lost my temper or I've been impatient or I've been rude or uncaring or where I have been hypocritical by professing one thing and doing another. And Lord, I don't doubt that every brother and sister of mine in this room can identify. Lord, it's at the times when I'm aware of the failures that I marvel at your grace because you don't throw us away or you don't kick us out of your family. You don't put us on the shelf. Each one of us, Lord, is still given the opportunity daily to serve you. So I pray, Lord, that you will begin to work in our hearts. Lord, at various times and in various ways, we are victorious, but far too often we feel and know that we fall short. Lord, strengthen us. We can't do this on our own. I thank you for the teaching that we get at Lakeside week after week. I thank you for the faithful exhortations from Pastor Steve that convict our hearts. Lord, help us turn conviction into action. Lord, I pray that you will open our eyes so that we can see the people watching us. Not so that we live fake lives like Pharisees, Lord, but so that we can genuinely show the love of Christ to the lost and dying. Lord, you give us a privilege to be examples for you. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us to be the kind of examples that you would use to draw the lost to yourself. Lord, help us be honest and confess where we've fallen short, but even beginning today, Lord, help us to be able to walk in a manner worthy of you, pleasing you in all respects. And I pray that our walks would be a light to a lost and dying world. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.